No doubt about it, America does seem to be breaking up at the seams. Here's a question. If the U.S. were to split up, what happens to the nukes? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shot. The United States of America. This has been a name, but it's always been more aspirational than reality. United States of America. President Lincoln certainly knew this. He spoke of the hope and intent to create what he called a more perfect union. How truly unified are the currently United States? The divisions we feel are intense and truly historic, but it's not exactly new. President Biden campaigned on and came into office promising the ineffable Concept of unity, a feel-good catch-all that proffered bipartisan bonhomie. And for his part, former President Trump at the recent right-wing CPAC convention also called for unity, this time in the Republican Party. When I saw Illinois Senator Barack Obama speak at the 2004 Democratic convention, he too called for unity. He said, there's not a liberal America and a conservative America. There's the United States of America. There's not a black America and a white America and a Latino America and an Asian America, not a red state conservative America or a blue liberal state uh, America. There's the United States of America aspirational for sure. With 2020 vision, we see that this call for unity may have been comforting, hopeful, and inspiring, but again, aspirational. It did not turn out to be true. Have we ever really been one nation in the true definition of the term nation? Certainly not. Colin Woodard in his 2012 book, American Nations, the 11 Nations of North America, clarifies the origin and persistence of divisions in the United States culture, which are not explained by class, state, or gender, but by ethno-regional cultural history. There was the division by nation in the war against Southern independence, commonly called the Civil War. Before that war, it was not settled as to where the locus of power really was, the states or Washington. And the war over the war in Vietnam, just a little bit divisive. In the early days of the environmental movement, there was the concept of distinct bioregions. Perhaps such ideas still make sense. At the end of the so-called Civil War, abolitionist Wendell Phillips declared maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. And that it has, and a lot of us don't like that. More and more on the left are agreeing. Wouldn't it have been better had the North made war and not made war on the South and just let them go? We would never have had a Trump as president or been so militaristic. And the typhoon of terror the black Americans were put through in the South could have been avoided had slavery been ended by other means. So here we are today in 2021, a very divided country. And more and more people on the right and left are talking about breaking up into our component parts. So we may have more peace and get along better and have better, more realistic spending priorities based on the values of each region. Is this realistic? Probably not in the next 10 years or so. But whoever thought the Soviet Union would break up? You may think it's a little crazy to talk about our topic today, which is, If the U.S. were to split up, what happens to the nukes?
Then again, it would have been insane to ever think a president of the United States would incite an insurrection against America. Though thought impossible, the USSR did split up. And so what happened to the nukes spread across the old Soviet state? Is it a safer world today because they broke up? Isn't the idea of rogue states with nuclear weapons just a little frightening? With us today to talk about such speculation is the author of an article that asks about the nukes after a split up. Ryan McMakin is here with us. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Burr. Great to be with you. Ryan McMakin is senior editor at the Mies Institute, M-I-S-E-S. Did I pronounce that right? That uh, Mises Institute. Mises yes, Institute. And, uh, well, first, what is the Mises Institute? Oh, we're a uh, economic-centered research center, but also uh, carry articles in political science and history. Uh, the focus is libertarian ideology, for the most part, uh, when it's not just more scientific economics. And uh, this goes back to 19th century, 18th century stuff, so we tend to be very anti-war uh-huh. as well, as the, the libertarians of old always tended to be. And continue to be so uh, for the most part today. And so we try to promote that view. And so uh, in putting together this column, I was, I was looking at the issue of two things, as you've mentioned already, the issue of political separation into smaller pieces mm-hmm. and what that would mean for foreign policy. So, of course, we're trying to create a view where we make sure it's clear that it's compatible to both break up these huge megastates into smaller pieces and also maintain peace. Sounds like an interesting thought, and here we are in the 21st century. Things are different. We can't keep going in the same old Cold War, you know, more and more nukes all the time. It just, it, it just can't happen. I mean, it is happening, but it's time to take another look at that. Well, Ryan McMakin has degrees in economics and political science from the University of Colorado and was a housing economist for the state of Colorado. He's the author of Commie Cowboys, the Bourgeoisie, and the Nation State in the Western Genre. Interesting. And the article on nukes after decentralization of power was originally published on the Eurasia, Eurasia Review newsletter. Well, again, let's let's put aside the predictable objections of even talking about breaking up the United States as ridiculous. The events that were deemed impossible have come to pass. We all know they have. Questions about the wisdom of American foreign policy and militarism have been with us since we became an imperial power with the so-called Spanish-American War of 1898. So there have been a lot of questions about imperialism. Is that who we really are and want to be? You start your essay this way. Opposition to American secession movements often hinges on the idea that foreign policy concerns trump any notions that the United States ought to be broken up into smaller pieces. What is this insistence on keeping up our beyond massive investment in all things military and determination to maintain hegemony around the world. Your thoughts? Well, I think the main problem there is just the fact that uh, people who are in favor of keeping the United States as this global hegemon that uh, intervenes always and everywhere, it decides to, that that power can never be diminished and that the whole global order relies on this, and that if the power of the American regime is lessened in any way, then chaos will break out worldwide. This is the ideology, at least. And so they then have a ready objection to any sort of secession movement in their pocket. It is, if you break up the United States into smaller 
pieces, you're looking basically at World War III, China will invade North America, the Russians will take over Europe, and chaos will reign. And so just as they did with the domino theory and all yeah. of these theories that, that the communists would take over if the U.S. didn't intervene always and everywhere, they do pretty much the same thing now when it comes to uh, radically lessening the power of the American regime by splitting it up. And certainly the uh, there's a lot of agreement, I think, right and left, especially among people who value liberty, that uh, uh, you know we don't need to be the world's policeman. I mean, a policeman has certain values, you know, and to impose those values all over the world, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, there is one way it works. It makes a lot of money for the weapons contractors, but that's about it. It doesn't make us any more politically powerful, maybe militarily, but not necessarily political. And for the last 80 years or so, many have questioned the need for foreign policy adventurism and wars, all of which cost our treasury untold trillions of dollars, which could be otherwise invested. Presidents, administrations, and both political parties have been similarly committed to aggressive foreign policies, hawkish foreign policies, with notable exceptions of Rand Paul on the right and Bernie Sanders on the left. They've all been hawkish. I, I wonder, do you think most Americans agree with this? Or are they really, really actually just concerned with being safe from attack? Your thoughts? Yes, I think the primary driving factor is, is that these people have been told basically their whole lives throughout grade school up into college if they went that uh, the U.S. is this uh, it's the only thing that the regime is the only thing standing between American freedom and conquest by foreign powers. Now of course anyone who's really looked into this uh, can see how absurd it is to claim that the Chinese would uh, send a navy across the Pacific to conquer North America and so on. But I think to the average person it's, who doesn't really understand anything about the logistics of that sort of thing, that maybe that seems plausible. Um, they, of course, buy that uh, Japan would have invaded North America during World War II, so why couldn't the Chinese do it now? So it's, it's a constant drumbeat that Americans are told this, that in order for the United States to remain safe and independent, it must spend $800 billion a year on a gigantic conventional military, a military that's large enough to invade a variety of foreign countries, station tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of troops there, enact regime change, and that all of that is absolutely necessary to the freedom of the American people. I don't think they put much thought into it, and I think if you look at presidential election, people don't seem to care that much about foreign oh, policy overall. So I think that's a big problem. It is a big problem. And quite frankly, it always frustrates the heck out of me. I mean, I am a, a traditional liberal Democrat. And one thing I really did not like about our nominee in 2016 was how incredibly hawkish she was. And you're, I don't think in the 2020 election, I don't remember if there was any talk about American foreign policy and our, you know, footprint and, you know, uh, uh, bases, like 800 bases all across the world. And, you know, we've, we've had this tremendous power imposed throughout Central and South America. And, you know, that's worked real well. Uh, it just, it, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting that uh, people don't really think about that. And we have this incredibly huge military now. 
since the Truman Doctrine, really, uh, is, is nearly exclusively offensive. It's not defensive. What makes you think that if the U.S. devolved into smaller units, that we'd still be ready and able to have a sufficient defensive military force? Because we want to be defensive. We don't want to be invaded. Yes, of course. Uh, no one denies that uh, states, regimes, need some sort of defensive military capability, or they need allies who can provide it. And uh, the U.S. is uh, very fortunate to be in a position of being a very wealthy country that can buy itself uh, the, the best in terms of technology and equipment and a Navy and all of that. That uh, is what keeps America safe. The fact is, what keeps America from foreign invention, uh, intervention is not, has nothing to do with the Army. You could completely get rid of the Army and all land-based troops, and it wouldn't be an issue at all. What, what keeps foreigners away from the United States is the Navy, which is huge and powerful and well-armed, and the fact that the United States has a nuclear arsenal, which doesn't need to be nearly as big as it is, but just having even a small one, uh, perhaps even just a few dozen uh, deliverable nuclear warheads is more than sufficient to ward off any sort of uh, existential threat to the U.S. regime. But that's, of course, not the game we're playing here. There needs to be a gigantic army. There needs to be an arsenal of thousands of nuclear warheads. This is what we're told is the bare minimum. And, uh, yes, you could scale this way, way back. You could have a, uh, a much smaller union of independent states mm -hmm. in North America easily provide the sort of military defense necessary. And in some recent columns, I looked at this. I looked at this from two angles. There's the conventional military angle, mm -hmm. and I looked at some research done by a fellow named Michael Beckley, who's done some real interesting research uh, in recent years about how China is, in fact, not poised to rival the United States militarily because on a per capita basis of wealth, it's so much more poorer than the United States. It's its net wealth is much, much below that of the U.S. So it knows that, quite frankly, it cannot challenge the U.S. Even if the U.S. were to break into smaller pieces, the sheer amount of wealth controlled by those smaller pieces would still rival China in terms of conventional military. But then on top of that, you have the much cheaper option of a conventional military, which is always a defense-oriented nuclear arsenal, mm -hmm. which you could subscribe to the idea of minimum deterrence, which is just enough to ensure that no existential threats can be brought to bear against a regime, lest you let the nukes fly. Mm -hmm. And that's all that you really need. And you could be a much, much smaller uh, state than what is the United States. You could be, you, you could break up the United States into dozens of pieces, and these smaller states could then enter either into voluntary agreements mm -hmm. or have their own small arsenal themselves, and that would be more than sufficient for military defense. The idea, I mean, I imagine some people could worry, well, if, if each state or different regions each has a nuclear weapon, what's to keep them from nuking each other? Yes, and that's, of course, a common objection brought up. Now, what Kenneth Waltz, uh, one of the grand old men of, of international relations, noted was that uh, we're always being told about proliferation and that these crazy people are going to get the bomb and then they're not going to be uh, constrained by the usual problems and they're just going to let all the bombs fly. Uh -huh. But that's never actually happened in our experience. And what he points out, points out is that when a regime does get nuclear capability, consider, for example, India and Pakistan, uh -huh. uh, they, they became far more conservative as regimes. 
in that they were far less interested in provoking other countries once they were nuclear powers, and that this actually has a constraining effect on regimes. And also, it's been pointed out by more than one person that this idea that, well, the Pakistanis are Muslims, so they're crazy, you can't let them get uh, the bomb. You would have to, if you were going to make that same argument, say, about Iran, you would have to show that the Iranian regime is crazier than, say, Mao, when he was starving to death tens of millions of Chinese peasants, or Stalin, when he was deciding he was going to change the climate of Russia by planting a bunch of trees. I mean, these people had all sorts of bonkers ideas, uh, and the idea that uh, those people were, were eminently sane and they could be trusted with nukes, but we can't trust yeah. someone like uh, the Iranians with them. Or, you know, Ohio isn't likely to uh, to nuke Tennessee, I don't think. You know, I just, I you know. Well, we, that's all the more of an issue, right, given the similarity in culture, yes. the union of uh, all having a common language, and the fact that you probably have relatives across the border. <laughs> uh, what's, what's this nonsense about the idea that, yeah, Ohio's going to let the nukes fly onto Iowa? I mean, it's just you're really straining the bounds of credulity with that. Yeah, well, we've had our own crazies here witness the most recent president. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Ryan McMakin, senior editor at the Mises Institute. And we're talking about, it may sound crazy, but it's not. If the U.S. were to split up, what happens to the nukes? And nukes are, uh, I think, a, a fairly effective uh, disincentive to attack. Yeah, you know, you don't want to do that. And if we start with the assumption that the U.S., and even if we broke up, would never consider a first strike nuclear attack, that we need, yeah, we need nuclear arrows in our quiver for genuine defensive purposes. What can we learn about effective nuclear defense from, say, the small state of Israel? Yes. Yes, there's some good lessons to be there. Now, before I, I proceed, I want to make it clear that I do think that the use of strategic uh, or strategic nuclear weapons is always morally illegitimate. Oh, right? yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You could have tactical weapons, which you could argue is only going to be used on the battlefield and so on. Yeah. But strategic weapons are always there to destroy entire cities. Right. So there's no way, at least for me, that you could argue that's that's moral. But no, no. if we are going to uh, hypothesize, uh, which is the bread and butter, of course, of international relations theory yeah. uh, and writing, is that uh, a state would go ahead and do this um, with the the odds that this another nuclear armed state that you attack could possibly retaliate. That's a high degree of deterrence. And so when we look at that, what we see is that if you are a country and you want to attack another nuclear-armed country, you have to be really, really sure that you're going to completely destroy their second-strike capability. Because, yeah, sure, even, even if you, you preemptively attack and you, you get the first strike in, mm. okay, are you going to leave anything left for them to do their second strike? And they only need a few that they can get to survive that your first strike and you're in deep, deep <laughs> trouble, especially if you're a smaller country. Uh, and yeah, go ahead. so we could see that even with China, right? China's only got uh, two or 300 warheads. Hmm. And you compare that to the United States, which has 6,000. Uh, it's, ah. it's a safe bet that China is safe from nuclear attack by the U.S. because 
what, uh, what guarantees do you have that you're going to eliminate all 300 of those? It's pretty much zero. Right. And because they can be moved around, they can be hidden. You can't trust to perfect uh, intelligence that you'll know where everyone is and be able to carry out that strike. So the second strike capability is extremely important, and that's what really provides that deterrence. And so you only need, as has been argued by some IR scholars, you only need maybe in the tens, you only need hundreds. We're talking uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 could be an effective oh, second yeah. strike capability. And because just imagine them raining down on just two or three American cities, right? And these being destroyed. That would end your presidential administration. <laughs> that would be it. It might even end the regime because the regime would then show that it can't be trusted and would rain and would call down death upon American cities. So let's let's move on to the Israel example. Sure, right? sure, sure. Here you've got a very small state yes. uh, with maybe 200 warheads in reserve, and really we're only told that, uh, we're only guessing that they've got about 80 mm -hmm. that are ready to go at any given time. Now, this has been proven to be in a very effective deterrent uh, for the Israelis. People, even though they've never admitted to having right. these arms, people know they have them, yes. they act as an effective deterrent, and it's known that uh, these, these arms are hidden, that they have second strike capability, and that this is a small country with only a fraction of the wealth on a per capita basis of the Americans, uh, with uh, a country that is about the size of Illinois in terms of its population, and with a smaller GDP. And so this is evidence of the fact that you can be a very small country and have enough wealth to produce a deterrent uh, nuclear arsenal. And uh, that's something that uh, the United States and everyone else should pay attention to. It would be nice if we uh, learned from things like that, and uh, most often we don't. There's what many what many people were really really scared about during the 1990 91 breakup of the Soviet Union was who gets the nukes? They had nukes all over the place. You cite the example of Ukraine. They were part of the USSR. But tell us about that, please. And the other former Soviet states like Kazakhstan and Belarus. Did they have nukes? And what happened with them? Yes, we've actually seen a situation before where you had a large nuclear armed state and it broke up into smaller pieces. And the question right. was, what happened yeah. in that case? And yes, there were three uh, primary states that had a huge percentage of the Soviet Union's overall nuclear arsenal, well over one third, maybe even more than one half. I, I don't quite remember. Uh, but we're talking thousands of uh, warheads. And that was in Ukraine, in Belarus, and in Kazakhstan. And so when the Soviet Union ended, you had to ask yourself, okay, as a Ukrainian, I'm now the independent Ukrainian regime, what do I want to do with these nuclear warheads? Now, Ukraine was uh, broke, and so they were pressured uh, with promises of international aid, uh, and also with just ideologically, they favor the idea of not being a nuclear armed state. Being a nuclear armed state makes you a target. It very much has costs associated with it. And so other states uh, had uh, promised, essentially, they denied it later, but uh, in, in a meeting in Budapest, they had promised that they would provide security for the Ukraine. So Ukraine said, okay, well, we'll get rid of all of our nukes. And so... Uh, they they dismantled them, they got rid of them, uh, and the Soviet Union tried to cause some problems. Obviously, the Russians, the new Russians, the Russian Federation, this new state, did not want Ukraine to be able to use these arms against them because right. these two countries had bad blood. Yeah. 
And this is instructive, right? If the U.S. were to break up into smaller pieces, yes, we hear a lot about how blue states and red states don't get along and all that stuff. Yeah, but that's that's nothing compared to the animosity that exists yeah. between the Ukrainians and the Russians. So what you had there was a situation there's far more tension uh, between these two nuclear-armed states, temporarily nuclear-armed in the case of Ukraine, and what they were going to do about it. And yes, the Russians said, well, we're not going to give you the launch codes, obviously, and, and we're still controlling launching from Moscow. But the reality is the Ukrainians directly controlled uh, some of the airborne nuclear warheads. Oh, wow. And uh, so they, they could, in fact, launch the weapons if they needed to, some of them. And so this was a very tense situation. Now, the international community, led by the Americans, who didn't want any proliferation, came in and said, okay, get rid of all your nukes, we'll give you a bunch of money, and so on. And they got, they got rid of them, as did, the, as did Belarus, as did Kazakhstan. And that all ended peacefully, um, partly because not all countries want to be nuclear-armed, mm. uh, but because people recognize how high the stakes are. And uh, so Ukraine got rid of theirs. Now, there is, nowadays, there's some controversy over that. Was that a good decision because we know that having at least a token arsenal, a uh -huh. uh, minimum deterrence ar arsenal, has its advantages. And the question now is, is would Russia have uh, basically annexed Crimea, and would they have as much of a presence in eastern Ukraine as they do now in the Donbass if uh, Ukraine had nuclear arms still? And so some think that was now a strategic blunder. Uh -huh. Uh, and that it might have actually been a stabilizing force in that part of the world. But nevertheless, it provides us a few things. It provides us the lesson that, yes, a, split, a country that splits up and has now several countries with nuclear arms, that can be resolved peacefully. And it also shows that some countries, uh, at least in the past, were willing to give up their nuclear arsenal without being forced to do so. Did Ukraine, you know, that, that there's been a, a back and forth between, you know, people who... Are, are fairly aggressive in wanting uh, the NATO to extend into Ukraine, and Russia certainly doesn't want that. I mean, you know, they've they've been in, uh, invaded from that side in the past. So, what about Ukraine's territorial integrity? Did that get factored in and resolved? Yeah, well, obviously, it's still up in the air, right? The yeah. Western nations, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. had promised. In fact, Russia had even promised as part of this agreement. To protect Ukraine's uh, territorial integrity, obviously that didn't happen uh, with Crimea and with some uh, eastern regions essentially being controlled by the Russian state now, or at least by Russian sympathizers. And so that didn't work out very well for Ukraine, I think is uh, a point that, that has to be made. And it might have, uh, we might not even be worrying about any of this if we had a nuclear-armed Ukraine, oh. because the, you're just, as a country, you're less willing to really push the envelope in terms of meddling on a neighbor's border when that border has nuclear arms. Now, we know that that doesn't do away with all conflict in general. Right. We do know that even nuclear-armed states are willing to fight each other on the periphery, as is the case with Pakistan and India, who continue to have border disputes yeah. um, in the Kashmir. But... Uh, in terms of posing any existential threats against a nuclear-armed regime, other regimes tend to be very, very careful about this. Because, of course, once any nuclear weapons start to go, yeah. then there's always the risk of complete and total escalation. 
and uh, nobody nobody wants to see that happen. Everyone realizes this is this is an extreme situation. There, there's probably not any such thing as a partial nuclear war. Yeah. Because things have a habit of getting out of hand, so it does actually act as a stabilizing force. Why do I keep thinking of Dr. Strangelove? I don't have any idea. <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen that movie, you really ought to. Uh, what is it? Uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love uh, the Atomic Bomb. Something like that. But Crimea used to be, I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe it used to be part of Ukraine. It was attached to Ukraine. Russia famously invaded in 2014 and took over uh, Crimea. Americans provided for the defense of neither Ukraine nor Crimea. Ukrainian people could have been in serious danger had there been a Russian attack. But uh, why then, as you write, do some Ukrainians insist that the Crimea crisis is not evidence of need for a nuclear deterrent? Well, some, of, I think, could point to the fact that Crimea was perhaps a unique situation because Crimea was, in fact mostly ethnically Russian, and that uh, before the 1960s, I believe, that administratively Crimea was considered part of Russia and not actually right. part of Ukraine. Right. So there's been some argument that, well, I mean, this is a unique situation and so on, but I think in a lot of cases it's just the idea that they should have their own nuclear deterrent is just overridden by ideology and just the idea that it's just better to not be a nuclear-armed state uh, at all. And I think a significant number of countries really do believe this, that it's just not worth the trouble or the risk. And you can point to countries that have voluntarily given up uh, nuclear weapons for other reasons. South Africa did that. They mm. actually had built and then uh, after a while just uh, took them took them apart and got rid of them. And then Sweden was really very close to putting together an arsenal and then just abandoned that at the last minute and didn't bother. And clearly other, what are functionally nuclear-capable countries have just elected to never build them, Japan, mm -hmm. for example. And obviously Germany could put together an arsenal pretty darn quickly yeah. as well if they deemed it necessary. So you could claim, of course, oh, well, those countries are uh, uh, all protected by the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Arguably so, but I think mm -hmm. as time goes on, you'll find that these countries are going to become a little less confident about what the U.S. is willing to do, especially if the uh, conflict between China and Taiwan escalates and the U.S. doesn't intervene there. Japan's going to start to wonder what its status is, and I could see them putting together their own defensive arsenal when that happens. Well, that brings up the question we sort of touched on earlier about if the U.S. doesn't keep, you know, keep the order uh, by our military footprint all around the world, pff, won't chaos uh, erupt all over the place? I mean, maybe it will. I, I don't know. I mean, it's true that without nuclear weapons, uh, Sweden and Finland have not been invaded by a nuclear Russia. You know, they, they just haven't been. Uh, so maybe, and, and South Africa, maybe it's just too expensive to do that. I don't know. And what what if if there is secession like there has been in the old Soviet Union? Um, what were some of the technical and logistical problems that had to be overcome, and how did they do it? That's you know people if people don't know about something, it, it makes you a little bit nervous. So how did they do it? These technical and logistical problems. Well, a lot of it was just circling around who had the actual ability to use these nuclear weapons, right? Because when it's a 
when it's a land-based silo sort of missile situation, uh, which is only one part of the nuclear triad, right? Uh, the the huh. nuclear triad being ground-based missiles, uh, bombers, and nuclear subs. Yeah, uh, the, the the idea there is that you can never knock out, you can never have your second strike capability knocked out if you have the nuclear triad. Because you can imagine the U.S. right? The U.S. has all of these nuclear silos across sure. uh, the upper Midwest and so on. Okay, you can knock those out, but what about the nuclear subs? You don't know where they are right. at any given time. And if you can get a few of those bombers in the air with uh, armed nuclear weapons in them. And you can, of course, always move those planes around so you never quite know where they are at any given time. Then you can move those around. And so different technologies are employed to use these different parts of the triad. And depending on who you talk to, and this is all, of course, secret information, right? Mm. It's uh, unclear exactly how much autonomy a nuclear sub has uh, to launch on its mm. own. Mm. Uh, these are all things that should frighten people, by the way. <laughs> the, the lack of clear um, governing authority over right. launching missiles. So on, uh, but that's that's not quite clear. The idea, though, is that you would have the second strike capability, and then someone would be able to launch them. Now, of course, in the case of Ukraine, then the question was who could launch them, or in the case of Belarus or Kazakhstan, and a lot of that was held by uh, Moscow. So you had to determine uh, real-world basic stuff of okay, well, we have the launch codes and the ability to launch them, but it was Ukraine that had. A functionally the ability to veto any sort of launch. Uh -huh. So even though Ukraine couldn't really use them without constructing a new operating system, which they were busy doing in the early 90s, so they eventually would have, in fact, gained control of the ability to launch them. They just would have uh, modified the silos and the, and the software to serve the Ukrainian regime instead. However, even in the interim, the Ukrainians functionally controlled access because the people who worked at the silos, once once you had the independent regime and the Ukrainians took over, right. people who actually worked there, they were paid by the Ukrainian regime. They worked for the Ukrainian regime. They were physically within the territory of Ukraine and so on. And so what that meant was uh, logistically mm. power had switched over to Ukrainian personnel. And so the individuals who were overseeing yeah. these physical artifacts were Ukrainians, so they could prevent the Soviets from using them, and eventually they would have been able to take them over themselves, but that would have taken some time and some money. But yeah, those things matter, uh, and you got to make sure that uh, <laughs> you avoid any sort of conflict in the meantime. But I think in situations like that, as was true of so many aspects of the fall of the Soviet Union, so much stuff was up in the air, people were very cautious, uh, they mm. didn't want crisis situation to arise, and that is in fact what happened. Interesting. I imagine there would be caution again if at some future date uh, the U.S. currently, theoretically, United States uh, kind of broke up, I, you know, because we had that one uh, rather ugly uh, situation back in the 1860s. We don't want to do that again. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, if the U.S. were to split up, what happens to the nukes? Our guest today is Ryan McMakin, senior editor at the Mises Institute. Uh, he's the author of Commie Cowboys, the Bourgeoisie, and the Nation State in the Western Genre. It's interesting stuff here. It, it, you know, there is precedent for it. The impossible has happened before, such as breaking up. And with regard to authorization, 
for launching a strike. What about, you know, sometimes there's regime change, which the U.S. has certainly been involved in, not always to the benefit of anybody. Uh, but if the missiles are physically located within the borders of a separatist state, do it, it, couldn't this mean a heightened danger, threats to other states? What authority would be there to prevent this heightened danger with regard to, uh, you know, uh, uh, different regimes coming into power? Well, I think the problem of deterrence just applies always and everywhere, no matter what you're doing. And it would be a bad analogy is in the case of, oh, yes, well, if you if you hand uh, some guy uh, a gun on the street, well, is he more likely or less likely to become more violent? Um, I think an argument can be made that he becomes more violent. Uh, because yes. he, he thinks he can start weight, uh, throwing his weight around. Sure. What's different about nuclear arms, however, is that you're almost guaranteed, first of all, there's no hiding your involvement, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to tell who used them, where where the origins <laughs> came from, yeah. and uh, it's, it's easy to figure out who to blame. Yeah. So it's unlike some punk on the street who could uh, you know, hide in the shadows and start shooting people. So you're you're get, you're going to receive blame, and then uh, if you create enough fear with other regimes, nuclear armed regimes, say you attacked a non-nuclear armed regime, um, and it's hard to understand why you would even do that, since uh, that regime uh, no would threat. be no threat to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all the all the countries that are potentially even a minor threat to the U.S like China, are already nuclear-armed. So it's hard to imagine the U.S. attacking a non-nuclear-armed regime, uh, even pieces of the U.S. But if you did do that, or, of course, if you did attack a nuclear-armed regime, you're guaranteed to face annihilation yeah. on your end. Yeah. Because they know you did it, yeah. and you can't cover that up. And so deterrence is very clear in that case. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, okay, why do you want to do this? And... So if you're going to argue that uh, you can trust sane people with nukes but not crazy people, now suddenly I guess you're going to have to make the case that the people who run, say, Texas or yep. Illinois or New England are, are crazy people on the order of, I don't know, Stalin or the Ayatollah. And I, <laughs> I don't find that very convincing, never mind the fact, of course, yeah. that due to the geographic realities, uh, am I supposed to believe that uh, some country is going to be bombing a country right next to it that's yeah. only a few hundred miles away yeah. and hope that everything just works out, <laughs> that the groundwater will be fine, there'll be no problem? Uh, I mean, there there's even more serious repercussions of engaging in that sort of close uh, combat oh, my, yes. with, with nuclear weapons. And so that's just another deterrence right there. Fallout. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, it just, you know, I know there's some, some crazy people in some of these states, but the phrase was mutually assured destruction, mad, you know, mutually. Who wants to do that? Mutually assured destruction. Not going to happen, I don't, I don't think. So I wonder about, okay, let's, let's you know, let this uh, happen, the secession that the U.S. Uh, does uh, break up into more realistic uh, republics or whatever. What would post-secession states have to do to install an effective, non-centralized system of deterrence? I mean, they don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. 
Well, and of course, countries all the time uh, join into military alliances, right? We can see that with NATO, uh-huh. as is. You don't have to have countries joined into a single nation state in order to enter into the advantages of uh, mutual military advantage. It happens all over the place. And you can see this uh, even in cases where you could not have NATO at all, and Canada would be fine. In that, any kind, if, say, China or the Soviet Union or anybody attacked Canada and started nuking Vancouver or Ottawa, well, it's pretty easy to see that the Americans would view that as Basically the same thing as an yeah. attack on the United States. Yeah. This would, right, because you can imagine a nuclear bomb rained down on Ottawa. This would cause panic uh, yeah. to an unbelievable degree in Chicago or yeah. Milwaukee, yeah. and rightly so. Oh, yeah. And so the U.S. would then respond uh, with uh, panic and alacrity, and that, it's hard to see how then attacking Canada would advantage uh, anyone who wanted to attack them. Uh, because it would just rain down retaliation from the Americans. Yeah. And so anytime you have countries that are very closely allied uh, in terms right. of language and history and culture and geography as well, uh, even without formal agreements between right. them, that you're likely to see significant re- retaliation from neighbors. And now, of course, in the case of the U.S., were it to break up into smaller pieces, this would be built in that you would only need maybe one or two of the old rump states, if you will, that is the old pieces of America, to maintain for themselves a defensive arsenal, but that that would, have, that would act as a defensive force for all the other parts oh. of this post-secession America as well, just as it functions to protect Canada now. And of course, we have every reason to believe that all these pieces would continue to be at peace, for the same reasons that the United States and Canada not and the entire British Empire and its uh, modern pieces, so New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the U.K. as well, all of these countries have been at peace since 1815. And you ask, okay, that's 205 years, that's a long time. Yeah. This is... This is all based on just formal cultural talk, on informal right. cultural talk. Right, sure. And, and we, we, a, yeah, these countries have no interest in going to war with each other for a wide variety of reasons. And, you know, since the end of what's commonly called the Civil War in America, as you point out, peace has reigned between the states. Obviously, we have, you know, there's cultural differences. Lord knows there's right and left and things like that. But America is not Eastern Europe with a rather long history of interstate conflict. We haven't had that. There was that one, you know, 1861 to 1865. Uh, Did it ever really end? That's another story. Why would the new regions need nuclear weapons? Oh, well, they might not need them. Um, However, the... uh, (laughs) They... they, You could see... Some of them wanting some because of the, I think, the perceived lessons of Ukraine. I think there would be fear that things could get bad enough between some of the states that some of these regions would want to maintain uh, nuclear weapons. I think some would say, forget it, it's not worth the trouble, but I think some would. And it would also probably just depend on the realities of how many are physically present uh, in that country when the dust settles. So you could have... Uh, a region of the country that really doesn't have much in terms of it doesn't have any nuclear sub-bases, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't have any ground-based nukes, 
and they might think it's not worth it or trying to get it, and we'll just count on collective security for the most part uh-huh. to protect them. You can see some places where, say, uh, down south where you've got uh, the nuclear-armed bombers already stationed, and they may ha- have a nuclear base cap- or a uh, naval base capable of, of uh, right. having nuclear subs there. And you see in those cases, okay, we'll take a few dozen, and, and that will be sufficient. So it would be that sort of thing. But it's hard to see where that would then lead to a next step for the like, well, where now that we're independent, we're going to uh, start uh, brinksmanship where we're going to walk right up the line of nuclear war. I I have yet to, no one's yet explained to me what situation would arise that would cause it to go in that direction. Now, politics isn't always rational, but that's just plain nuts. That would be crazy to do. I mean, I just, I agree with you. I can't, I, I can't see it. And you referred to Kenneth Waltz earlier, and you referred to him as saying nuclear weapons may promise increased security and independence at an affordable price. Again, who is he, and what does he mean by that? And and what? And let's let's get into that argument a little bit. So Waltz is one of the most influential uh, theorists of international relations within what's called realism. So there are various different schools of international relations. There's there's liberalism, which really isn't anything like. Uh, what you and I would consider to be domestic liberalism, uh, is a liberalism behind the idea that uh, you should do a bunch of regime change and, and make all other countries into uh, democracies similar to the United States, and uh, that would make the world uh, a peaceful paradise then forevermore. Uh, but the realist view is that pretty much all states, whether despotic or democratic or not, behave in largely the same fashion. And they have a certain view, then, of what the best way is to uh, create peaceful um, situations out of that. And Waltz was one of these people and pointed to the fact that regardless of the type of regime, countries that obtained nuclear weapons tended to behave very, very similarly, whether they were democracies or not. And so we can look to him, and he's really developed the ideas of uh, deterrence as being very effective, even with a small number of warheads, and also he's developed the idea of uh, defensive realism, which is this idea that once countries reach a point where they're satisfied with their ability to defend themselves from a local uh, or global hegemon, that they're satisfied with the status quo at that point, Hmm. that if they can secure enough defense through a nuclear arsenal or a large enough conventional military, um, which mm-hmm. nowadays is probably going to require a nuclear arsenal. A conventional military probably isn't enough when you're dealing with huge megastates like China or the United States. And But if those countries can, can obtain that sort of defensive capability, that they really have no reason to expand. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, there's always disagreement among other theorists. Uh, John Mearsheimer is an, is an offensive realist, and he believes that even once states have a significant defensive capability, they want to expand to become at least a regional hegemon. Uh, but even in his case, then, what you're looking at, at are countries that, including China, would generally be satisfied with establishing influence even within their own region. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's not good reason among uh, all these theorists to believe that China would want to expand into the Western Hemisphere for example, mm-hmm. that China's real motivation is just to get the United States out of East Asia uh-huh. and, and quit acting like the United States can do whatever it mm-hmm. wants in any part of the world, including East Asia. And that this points toward more of a long-term situation in East Asia where you're going to end up with uh, 
with Japan and Russia really promoting their own interests more so. And I think that's that's the inevitable reality of East Asia because the United States isn't going to be able to afford to do that indef- indefinitely. But as far as the Western Hemisphere is concerned, the U.S. is so far away, so powerful over Latin America and over oh, North yeah. America that it would be insane for any other power to try and really uh, get a foothold in that region. And imperialism is... I think I think becoming passe. I may be completely naive in that, but it's like, you know, that was there for the 19th century, and countries felt like they had to do it, you know, because there were all these other empires, and it takes a really big country with a lot of money to spare to to do that empire kind of thing. I mean, Japan thought they had that empire there, and you know, there's talk of the the around you know the. Uh, the Pacific there, the Pacific Rim, as it's called, uh, you know, let let uh, sleeping dogs lie, as it were. You know, do we have to? And if we're not so big, doesn't that sort of take away the impetus for being so imperialist, a global hegemon, as you say? Uh, if, if it's not, you know, some big, huge United States of America, maybe that uh, can lead to a less aggressive foreign policy, which I'd kind of like to see. Well, Japan, of course, is an excellent uh, bit of evidence that uh, you can be a group of islands that's very poor in resources mm-hmm. and still become very wealthy. Mm. Of course, a big part of the motivation of the empire of Japan was to obtain oil yeah. and other resources in other parts of the world, and it felt like it was getting hemmed in by these other empires, and so it had to invade yep. and secure those natural resources. But then, of course, when it was forced to abandon those hopes, it did so and became very, very wealthy anyway. Mm-hmm. Other are South Korea, yeah. Singapore, Hong Kong. These are all countries that do not have access to any sizable amount of resources and have nevertheless become very, very wealthy. So yes, I, I think real state power, geopolitical power lies in economic yes. power now, which does not need to be territorially based. And so just conquering a new chunk of the world is not particularly helpful. <laughs> However, all these states, nevertheless, they want to maintain their shipping lanes. They yeah. want to have influence over neighbors. These are all important factors. And so if you're like China, you think you can get to the point of really dominating your corner of the globe. I think they do still want to do it, but there can be very high costs. Uh-huh. I think there's a lot more recognition of the fact that military operations are very costly and may not, in fact, pay any dividends in the long run, because, of course, examples like even the British Empire shows to us that sure. uh, the economic costs of maintaining an empire are more trouble than it's worth yeah. Uh, yeah. in a lot of cases. And so they just abandon those ideas. But even in the United States, right, uh, the idea of uh, maintaining global power through territorial gains and just intervening always and everywhere is, is pretty clearly, I think, in decline when the Obama administration wanted to put boots on the ground in Syria and do really yeah. what looked like they were planning a full-fledged intervention there, an invasion, the public seemed completely uninterested uh, mm. and opposed, it, apparently, to the point where the administration abandoned the idea. And then Trump was afraid, really, to escalate significantly anywhere, although he certainly upped military spending. And I think the old idea that humanity, right, it used to be, oh, we'll invade foreign lands and get more resources we abandoned that, and then it was, oh, we'll invade foreign lands for humanitarian reasons. Yeah. Americans mm-hmm. don't even seem really convinced by that anymore. God, no. Humanitarian intervention. Uh-huh. Inter- 
and I think the one last thing standing is this idea of weapons of mass destruction. And so that's that idea of we've got to prevent other countries from getting nuclear warheads. We've got to prevent proliferation. And so we're going to invade Iraq. We're going to invade Iran. And we're going to prevent all these crazy people from getting the bomb. And so, so much of it really does come back to nuclear warheads. Wow, it does. Interesting. And what are the motiv motivations for the increased talk these days and thinking about breaking up the U.S.? And it has really increased, is that we, we become just too big to govern. You know, when the United States was formed, when when the various states came into being, it, pfft, it wasn't that big. There were, what, 30 million Americans in the uh, American Civil War. Now there's more than 10 times that. And there is talk of new combinations, more natural bioregions like Cascadia, Cascadia being Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia, or new northeastern region consisting of Northern New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. But the large states now, which at least theoretically would not need to group up, like Ohio with 11 million people, as you say, with a, a GDP nearly as large as that of uh, Switzerland, can states function independently, or uh, is there uh, a likelihood that uh, post-secession American states would would probably not act alone in the realm of international relations, but probably would uh, have uh, uh, collaborative uh, security, something like that. Your thoughts? Yes. I, I, part of the reason I attack the military side of it is because that's one of the few remaining convincing arguments against secession, arguing that any of these countries are too small to behave as an economic unit aren't convincing at all. No, true. Uh, you, you could just look at Texas, right? Texas is 25 million people. It has a GDP the size of Australia uh, and just as many people. And so this idea that, oh, well, Australia can be an independent country, but not Texas. So based on what? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is larger than many countries around the globe. And, of course, California all the more so. But, yes, you could see where these would break off into blocks. So uh, perhaps New England would elect to be its own confederation of sorts, uh, which, of course, they had, had contemplated back in the days of the War of 1812, and they didn't want to be part of that war, and so they thought about breaking up then. And, yeah, there's no reason they couldn't do that now. They would have a, a population to rival that of uh, many European nations and a big GDP. Uh, they'd have coastline. There's zero reason why they couldn't function uh, along yep. those lines all on their own. But, yeah, as you mentioned, they don't have to do it on their own. They could just simply elect to have regional blocks where they behaved like uh, the U.S. was originally intended to do, which was to be a collection of sovereign independent states that for purposes of foreign policy, uh, and this is exactly what Jefferson said. He said that the United States would be uh, unified on foreign policy and separate on domestic policy. Oh, wow. And that was it, is that... Uh, we would all come together and we would deal with the, the British crown and the Spanish crown and all of that as, as a single entity for purposes of foreign policy and defense. And that's it. And that in terms of internal governance, you don't really need unity at all. And uh, other countries do that as well. United Arab Emirates and uh, uh, Switzerland was originally devised to be that as, as well. And like the U.S., they've moved more toward, to some degree, of uh, internal unity, but, but they're even more dis, uh, decentralized than the United States is, in that even more government takes place at the highly localized level in Switzerland yes. huh. and in the U.S. And countries can, countries can easily do this. There's no reason why you need 
uh, to be unified domestically in order to function as a, an, a unit in the international sphere. Interesting. And people, you know, the, the idea of self-government, that's that's a good idea. And when we're so big, 330 million people, it's it's sort of difficult to do that. And I think, you know, the left and the right, you have, as we said, Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul are both for a far less aggressive foreign policy. And you know, I, I think maybe there's a, a new embryonic new alliance that may be happening. The decentralization of power in, in a gathering of, of more natural groupings is gaining in popularity. It may happen in my lifetime, I don't know, but I, I, I think it's not impossible. As Along these lines, you point out that a continuation of the current trend toward political centralization in Washington and the growing political domination of every corner of the nation by central authorities is likely to only harm future prospects for amicable separation and peaceful cooperation on the international stage. I, I don't know. I think, I think uh, it may be inevitable. Can there be an amicable separation? Yes, I think the key to maintaining good relations among all these different groups of people is to not be in a situation where if whatever side wins gets to do whatever it wants no. to the other side. And uh, this creates bad blood. It yeah. creates fear yeah. as well that the other side might win. And, I mean, you can look at all those people who are referring to Trump as literally Hitler and that sort mm -hmm. of thing, right? I mean, I think that, that, that was born out of, like, real fear, and then, of course, you had similar things being said by the right uh, about mm -hmm. uh, Democrats retaking power. And you can imagine that if, if domestic policy were separate between, uh, say, uh, Texas and New England, mm -hmm. that, and there was nothing they could do to each other in terms of domestic policy, what reason would they have to hate each other? Mm. And what reason mm. would they have to fear each other? And, of mm -hmm. course, in terms of foreign policy, there'd be virtually no disagreements uh, at all. It's hard to find any significant uh, uh, t topics of departure in foreign policy between a Californian and a Coloradan, for yeah. example. So I think it's, it's interesting that fear is so powerful. Fear is so powerful that that's what, what's what motivates so many things. And if people don't need to fear quite as much, huh, you know, we are in the 21st century. There is enough to go around. Uh, maybe it can be done. Very interesting discussion. If people want to keep up with more of your writing, uh, is there some place on that Internet thing that you can uh, suggest people look at? <laughs> oh, yes. They can always just come. And I've got new articles every week at MISES.org, at uh, Mises.org. And so, yeah, we, we, decentralization is one of our key issues. Uh -huh. uh, opposition to war is another key issue. Um, and, of course, they might even come. They might even find they like some of the aspects of our uh, pro-capitalist bent as oh well, gosh. which, of course, though, t tends to take a very small businessman-centered approach, real entrepreneurship, that sort of thing. Wow. And uh, that's another aspect of it also. Jeez, I happen to agree with you on that. You know, what we have now is not really free market capitalism. It's, you know, something else entirely. That's a topic for another discussion. Thank you so much, Ryan McMakin. A very interesting discussion. And uh, I think there's some uh, very interesting possibilities ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you. The party's over here.